Before we get into the sermon, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some upcoming plans for us as a church, uh, including uh, reopening uh, in a limited way. Uh, as you might know, the province has said that we can have gatherings of 50, and uh, we can fit uh, 50 people in our room, pretty much socially distanced. In fact, there are some here now. So if you're at home, take a look. We've invited some people as guinea pigs, just to kind of see how it looks. Uh, people, you can wave. These are real people, uh, not CGI, anything like that. And so you'll see, we're kind of spaced out. Uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, but it's great to be gathered together. And some of you at home may be thinking, man, I'd really love to do that. And so we're going to make that option available starting next week uh, on the Wednesday weekly uh, email, or sometimes Thursday. Uh, you're going to get information about that, uh, how to sign up. You're going to have to register so you know how many people are coming. There's a few COVID protocols, of course. Uh, but it's a really good thing to be able to gather together in person if you're comfortable with that. If not, not to worry, we're going to be here online every Sunday for a long time to come, but if that's something that interests you, look for more details and, uh, and be thankful, I guess, that we can come together, that our numbers are still low. We're going to keep praying to that end. So, in fact, uh, let me pray before we go any further. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and for our province. Lord God, we are thankful. Thankful that uh, in terms of Comparisons with the world, uh, BC is in very good shape. Lord, we're thankful that uh, there's many days without deaths uh, because of COVID. Uh, Lord, our numbers are, are just flat, and we're thankful for that. God, I just pray for us as a church, for all the churches that are looking to find ways to still connect and uh, regather together. I pray for wisdom. I pray for patience and understanding, especially for those who feel a little bit differently than we do about the current climate. I just pray, God, that we would really look to be a blessing to each other, understanding with each other. And Lord, that where possible, we would be able to be in each other's presence and be in your presence. We're thankful, Jesus, that wherever we are, we know you're with us. Uh, I pray, God, for those who are here in this physical space and those who are watching online, God, that you would be with us. You would speak to us through your word, by your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing on through uh, the book of Luke. Uh, today we are in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be uh, in verses 23 to 27. So I'd invite you to turn there if you have a Bible with you. Uh, but I'd like to begin uh, by talking about a uh, really fascinating man. I read an article about him uh, this week. His name is Victor Vescovo. Uh, Victor Vescovo is a very smart, uh, wealthy, adventurous man. Uh, he was educated at MIT. He studied uh, risk analysis and from there went into a bunch of different careers uh, in the military. He was uh, like a bombing targeter, intelligence officer, jet pilot, um, helicopter pilot. Uh, but at some point, he switched careers and he took all of his training and applied it to the world of finance. And uh, he made lots of money. Uh, he manages a hedge fund or equity fund, some sort of fund, which somehow makes a lot of money, and uh, the interesting thing about Victor is that uh, he made this money um, not so that he could then live a comfortable life, but he was really interested in living an adventurous life, uh, a full life. So uh, he has summited all of the major mountain peaks around the globe, on every continent. He's been to each pole. He's been on countless expeditions, and most recently, the reason I was reading this article is he had this idea uh, to dive down to the deepest parts of all of the five oceans. He called it the five deeps. And so to do this, he had to use a lot of his money to build a, a special submarine. So we're going to show a picture of Victor looking very kind of adventurous and his submarine. It's a little hard to tell, but it looks like kind of a square suitcase, rectangular suitcase. And what it does, it goes deep moves around a little bit and comes back up. It's the only submarine in the world that can do this to withstand all the pressure. Just to give you an idea, 
when Victor went down to the deepest trench, the Mariana Trench, he was 36,000 feet below sea level, which if you're not familiar, a plane flies at 35,000 feet in the air. So he was just as deep as a plane would fly in the air. Uh, Everest is only 29,000 feet high. It, it took him four hours to get down to the bottom of the ocean. He did it a number of different times, different places. There were electrical malfunctions, equipment malfunctions, but the sub stayed intact. Uh, the big question, though, that probably we have, uh, for, uh, you know, for someone like Victor is, Victor, why are you doing this? Why put yourself in the most hostile environment that the earth has to offer? Why, why wouldn't you go and enjoy your money? Why wouldn't you live a more comfortable life? Well, remember, uh, Victor is trained as a risk analyst. And so uh, he's not just some impulsive millionaire. He, he calculates uh, risk very intentionally, and he lives very intentionally. So when the interviewer asked him just sort of about how he lives his life, um, here's what he said. He said, death at some point is a given. You have to accept it. The gravest risk a person could take is to waste time on earth and reach the end without having maximally lived. That is the only way to fight against mortality. I really liked that phrase, maximally lived. I thought that was so compelling, right? You just want to see someone tattooed with it or scrawled somewhere. Uh, very poetic, even. And it does kind of have the ring of truth. I mean, the, the idea that we would live life to its fullest, that does seem to be how most of us live. In fact, we would say generally it's a good idea. Right? You want to get the most out of life. Someone who seeks to do important, difficult, worthwhile things, we would say tends to live a better life than someone whose greatest aspiration is to you know, make it through all to the end of any series they're watching or spend their day on the couch. We would say that you're not really living. The thing is, though, that when we think about a maximally lived life, we, we can't just think of it in earthly terms. The real question should be, Victor, are you, are you really designing your life to get the most that life could offer you. Because, you know, Victor says that death is a certainty, which in a sense it is, but the Bible makes very clear that death is not the end of life. And if death is not the end of life, then we should really calculate in all of the potential life that comes after death that the Bible says is available to us in the gospel. The interesting thing, though, that we're going to see in our text is that to, to gain access to this biblically maximized life, we need to be ready to let go of the life that we're living here and now. Jesus says, to gain the true life that God gives, we need to be willing to lose the one that we have, and we need to be willing to do it for the right reasons. So with that in mind, with the idea that we're going we're gonna to dig into a maximized, full life and how we, how we can access it in the gospel, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 23 of chapter uh, 9, and here Jesus is speaking again to his disciples. He says to them, uh, and he said to them all, if anyone would take, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when, it, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So we're going to pull out three sort of main realities when it comes to what it means to live life as a disciple of Jesus. Three truths that he gives us here 
in terms of how to get the most out of life, true life, uh, according to the Bible. And the first thing we see is that we are called to a crucified life. A crucified life. Um, I say we because if you notice in the text, Jesus is speaking to like disciples, 12 disciples, but actually he's speaking to everyone. He, he says the term, if anyone. So if anyone at any time would want to come after me, want to follow me, here's, here's what you need to do. So he's speaking to us, disciples, anyone who wants to follow Jesus, even years later. And the term crucified, I, I take that because he says very clearly, you need to take up your cross. You need to carry your cross, bear, bear your cross. Now that at the time, for the disciples, would have been a very strange thing for Jesus to say. At the time, the idea of a crucifixion had no positive connotations. For us, those of us who've been around the church, we have some sense that this is a, this is a positive thing, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But back then, Jesus was just talking about a form of execution. So he was saying to them, you need to live a, an, a life of death. And for them, it would have been, I mean, difficult. Even today, it's difficult. Most of the time today when we talk about the Christian life, we use words like redeemed, forgiven, blessed, joyful, renewed. Those, those are all real realities of life in Christ. But what we see here, there are some other realities, key realities about what it means to follow the Lord. We are called to a comprehensive and costly sacrifice on a daily basis. Because the truth is, we aren't just saved by the cross, we are saved to the way of the cross. The way that we experience all that Jesus has for us is to follow him, not just, not just who he is, but also in the way that he walked and the way that he lived. So what we're going to do for this first point is to examine, you know, what does it mean to be crucified daily? What's this concept of, of denying ourselves? And we're going to look at the words themselves. So let's look back at verse 23 to look at the specific commands that Jesus gives. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Now, the first one seems fairly sort of obvious, right? To deny oneself means to forget oneself. Instead of pursuing your own pleasure, you pursue the pleasures of God. You seek to do what God says is best, which, of course, is totally contrary to what the world would say is best. Most of the time these days, you hear people say, you know, what you need to do, if you want a good life, you've got to figure out what you want. You need to, you need to figure out your dreams, your goals, your desires, and then you need to pursue those things. What you really need to do is to claim what's rightfully yours. The focus, in terms of you know, the prevailing wisdom of the day, is, is if you can figure out you and you can do what you want, then you are going to be satisfied and joyful. You're going to have a good life. But if you're a Christian, we should sort of see the problem with that. I mean, if you're a Christian that's seeking to follow Jesus, it should be fairly obvious that Jesus did not live that way. Right? I mean, Jesus... Everything about the way that he lived was to, to give up his rights. I mean, he was in heaven. Everything was great. He was enjoying perfect communion with the Father and with the Spirit. He enjoyed the bounty of heaven, enjoying his role as, as God the Son in glory, and yet he gave all that up to come down. And even while he was here, we see him intentionally doing what the Father had set out for him, not, not what he wanted. There's that moment in the garden, right, where he prays and says, Lord, your will be done, Father, your will be done, not my own. So it would be pretty strange to think that we would live in a way that's different from Jesus if we're actually following Jesus. And right away you can see how practical this text is. Because it, what bubbles to the surface right away are, are probably a whole bunch of different points of application for us as individuals. 
I mean, there must be things that we are holding on to that Jesus would say it's best for us to let go. So many ways in which we are indulging ourselves rather than denying ourselves. When we read a text like this, we can't help but think to ourselves, man, there's a disconnect in terms of the way that I think and the way that I live naturally when in fact God is calling me to something different. The next phrase though is one that's, that's maybe more, uh, maybe it's not more confusing, but I think it's more often misapplied, this idea of taking up our cross. If you've been in Christian circles at all, you hear this sometimes for all sorts of stuff, right? And any hardship, any difficulty that we experience, people would say, well, I'm, I'm bearing my cross, right? You might talk to someone uh, in the lobby if we ever get to be in the lobby again, and they might say to you, uh, you know, what, what are you doing this weekend? And they say, well, you know, it's a long weekend and, you know, my brother-in-law and his family are coming in from out of town. And man, I just got to tell you, he's a really difficult guy to be around. He's really, he's really rude and, uh, and abrasive and difficult. But, you know, I got to bear my cross. I married into the family and so that's, that's what I got to do. That's not what Jesus is saying here, just so we're clear. He's not talking about just any hardship that we go through in life. Uh, That's not to downplay the hardships that we go through, but it's to clarify what is the heart of discipleship. The heart of discipleship is to suffer for the sake of being obedient to Jesus, for the sake of responding to the promptings of the Spirit, to to going where he leads. There's a a Christian author and speaker. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata, and um, she's endured a lot of pain in life. She's been a quadriplegic for for a long time, uh, endured a lot of uh, surgeries, and I think in pain most of the time. And uh, she, she talks about the difference between ordinary struggles of life and what it means to really bear our cross for Jesus. So here's what she says. She says, that's what it means to become like Jesus in his death. Don't think that the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to sin and you live to God. You'll notice I changed the example from mother-in-law to brother-in-law. I thought it'd be safer if I went brother-in-law. Um, So the the cross is the place where you die to sin and and you live to God. So the idea there is that you're you're concerned with, you're interested in really being obedient. Now here's the thing, a brother-in-law coming over, a difficult brother-in-law, whoever, a difficult situation isn't necessarily bearing your cross for Jesus, but it might be. For example, in that situation, it may be the case. You could imagine a situation where there was a real hurt between a family member. Maybe that brother-in-law had done something to to betray or really hurt the person you're talking to. And because they're both Christians, because at least the person you're talking to is a Christian, they've they've sought to reconcile. They've wanted to patch up that relationship and forgive. And so perhaps inviting a brother-in-law and his family over to stay for the weekend is really a demonstration of the forgiveness of Christ. That that person would much rather not spend the time. If they had their way, they would say, I don't want to deal with it. It's too hard. And yet because of the forgiveness they've experienced, they say, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to love my brother-in-law the way that I've been loved by Christ. That is bearing up your cross. It's a heart of intentionality, a heart of loving people in the way that Christ loves us. And, it, and what comes with it very often is a need to suffer, is a need to sacrifice something. And you do it willingly, joyfully, because you have a greater goal in mind, which is to magnify Jesus. You'll notice, though, that what, what Jesus says here is that we are to do this daily. I mean, daily seems difficult. I think a lot of us would say, you know, when it comes to suffering, I'm, I'm open to it. 
I know that it, it's going to happen. If, if I have to, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. I get it. Sometimes there's a situation, but I'm not going to go looking for it. And yet here, Jesus is saying that we're called to do this daily. The only way we're going to do this daily, I think, is if we do go looking for it. It's a heart disposition that when you wake up in the morning, you're in prayer right away saying, Lord, would you help me to turn from my sin and would you help me to look for those opportunities where I can really love people the way that you love me? God, help me not to care about what it might cost me. Help me not to care about the difficulty and suffering that might come. Help me to care most of all that I honor you. See, for most of us, I think we'd say, I'm, I'm open to it, but I'm not looking for it. And yet what we see Jesus say here is that if we're only open to it, if we're not interested in it in a daily, regular, consistent way, then we might be missing. We might be missing the, the greater life that God has for us because there's a connection between our willingness to suffer, our interest, our, our intentionality about living this way and the life that we experience. This comes point number two. Point number two is we will only save our life by losing it. And you see Jesus make this kind of next step in his argument. Look at verse 24. He says, for, so because, why would you live that way? Why would you live a crucified life? Because whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. On the face of it, this is one of those sayings that it's like a proverbial saying that you're like, what, what does it mean? Live, if you're going to lose your life, you're going to save it. It seems like it's just self-contradictory. But at the core of it is an immensely important truth that's based on gospel logic. Gospel logic, not earthly logic, gospel logic. And, and here's the way it works. You'll notice he said there, whoever would save his life will lose it. So the idea there is that there are people living their lives trying to save it trying to make the most of life, but as they're trying, they're actually losing the thing that they're trying to grab hold of. You say, well, how could this be? If you're trying to grab hold of life, how could you actually lose life? Well, the answer is because most people in the world have a very narrow understanding of life. The Bible talks about life uh, from a couple of different points of view and speaks about it in terms of earthly life and also eternal life. When it comes to earthly life, what we see very clearly is that it's temporary. It doesn't last long. Now look here at James 4.14. James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A mist just comes in the morning for a little bit and and then goes away. This is your life on earth. 80 years, 90 years, it's a blink, it's gone. But then look at John 10.10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That sense of life is, is the life that Jesus has for us, that he's calling us to. Sometimes he says eternal life, spiritual life, genuine life. You can see the the two kinds of life that are being spoken about. When you think of it like that, these verses make a lot of sense. There are those who would save their earthly life, but they end up losing it. And there are others. There are others who are willing to lose their earthly life for the sake of gaining true and genuine spiritual life. Now, we need to say something important here. This whole idea of of losing life, of of being crucified, of of living this life of of death, sometimes you might get the impression that that the right attitude then is is kind of a a self-loathing, right? A a willing martyrdom of just wanting that, that we're horrible. We need to just kill everything in us. 
this real negative view of ourself, but in fact, that's not what this is about. See, what Jesus, the reason he's saying this is because he loves us. Our worth is far more than we tend to imagine. Our worth is because we're made in the image of God and and because we're his children and because Jesus loves us, he has done everything to save us and that's why he's saying to us, look, I, I want for you to have a clear understanding of genuine life so that you can experience it maximally, as Victor would say, fully, as we would say. And to do this, you need to understand that true life is not found in this world. Because the life in this world, it always ends in death. True life, in fact, must be found in the one who can go beyond death, which is Jesus himself. That's, that's the gospel of Jesus. In fact, what Jesus does in his next statement is to take this idea that there is greater value, greater truth in, in him, in a life that goes beyond death, beyond this earth, and he compares it to the life that we might seek to live. Here's verse 25. It's this, uh, probably one of the more famous, I think, verses in the Bible. He says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So you see what Jesus is doing here, right? He's, he's making a comparison. He's forcing us to compare the, the things that are on this earth and spiritual things. And the interesting thing is, that when we think of life around us, by and large, we tend to think that it's fairly valuable. I mean, if you just think about the way we live, what do we do? We're building a life that is worthwhile. I mean, some people are filling it with like jet skis and infinity pools, and it's easy to be like, no, we need, need something that's a real substance. But most of us, what, what, do, what do we think is important in this earthly life? We say things like, look, look, you know what? Family is everything. If you have family with you, then that's that's all you need. We say things like uh, friends. There's nothing more important than friends. Your health. Do you have your health? If you got your health, and you've you've got everything you need. We talk about building a a stable financial future. We talk about building a life and a career. All these good things that we're using as building blocks to craft this life together. We would we would say. We don't usually say it, but we would live in such a way that people would think, man, this, those things seem really valuable. It seems like people really care. That's what people tend to be putting a lot of time and energy and effort into those things, and they are good things. But is it possible that their value has been inflated? That in fact, they're, they're not as valuable as we think. Because this happens all the time, right? That things that seem inherently valuable are in fact not as valuable as as we think they are? Here's an example. An example that may make a lot of romantics in the crowd sad, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So here's the example. Uh, Take diamonds, for instance. Uh, Diamonds are are those things which, I mean, they're associated with glamour, with beauty, with longevity, and with value. Right? I mean, a diamond, we know that a diamond is, is near priceless. It, it's, so, it's so valuable, it's almost a currency unto itself. Why? Because diamonds are, are rare. They're precious. They're precious gems. That's what they're called. But did you know that's not exactly true? I mean, it is true that diamonds are like the hardest substance uh, on earth and that they were very rare at some point in time. But these days, the reason that we think diamonds are rare is because of one company, the De Beers Diamond Company. In the late 1800s, they bought up most of the diamond mines all over the world. And for most, up until about the 1990s, 
uh, they owned 85% of the diamond stockpiles uh, on the earth. And they only gave out a little bit at a time to ensure that people thought that they were very, very rare. The reason that we think that diamonds uh, are associated with longevity is because of the ad campaign that the De Beers Diamond Company came out with in 1947. It has been voted the best uh, marketing slogan of the 20th century, and you know it already. We'll put it up on the screen. It's a diamond is forever. A diamond is forever. That was, I came up with uh, by a, an ad person who kind of thought, I don't know, maybe this is a good line, maybe it's not, and it's just taken off. Everyone loves it. In fact, De Beers used it when they were accused of having a monopoly. They just marketed diamonds. They didn't even care. As people were buying diamonds, they were buying their diamonds. The thing about De Beers, they came up with the whole idea of an engagement ring. Didn't exist before then. They even marketed, they told guys how much they should spend. At first it was a month's salary, then they changed it to two months' salary. Diamonds, when you take them out of the store, are worth 50% of what you paid for them, and you cannot sell them anywhere. Lego has a better resale value. We've sold Lego very easily on Craigslist. You cannot, sell, you cannot sell diamonds. Now, here's what I'm saying. For the romantics in the audience, I'm not saying, guys, if anyone's planning on getting engaged, please make sure you buy a ring, okay? You need to, if you want her to say yes, okay? It's not a bad thing. There's other value attached to an engagement ring, right? It, it shows your commitment and your love, and it's a beautiful thing. But diamonds are helpful because everyone thinks that they're valuable in part because of what we've been told when in fact they have no real inherent worth, especially when you compare them to something that is truly valuable. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's not saying just a diamond. He's saying the whole world. Think, think of the gazillions and trillions of dollars and all the goods in the whole world and he's comparing it to us, to our soul. And he's saying one of these things is very, very valuable. The other can be easily gone away with. Here's uh, J.C. Ryle, who's a, uh, pastor from years gone by, but here's what he says about our soul, to explain the value of our soul. He says, to lose or to forfeit oneself, one's soul, is to lose God and Christ and heaven and glory and happiness to all eternity. It is to be cast away forever, helpless and hopeless in hell. Which seems very harsh, but, but why does he say that? Why does he say that this dire situation is what it means to lose your soul because the Bible makes very clear two things about our soul. One is that the most valuable thing that we have is our soul. It is the thing that has been created in the image of God. It is the thing that we possess that is our very selves. Our bodies may die. Our soul lives on past death. It is our life. But the other thing the Bible says, what's difficult for us to see is that each of us has put our soul in great danger. That because of our sin, because we've turned away from God, because we've lived our own way, that we put ourselves in great peril. We've lied and cheated and stolen. We've lived for other things, worshipped other gods in a real sense. It's not difficult to look around and see the reality that human beings have embraced evil and corruption as individuals and as a human race. And what Jesus makes very clear is that there will be a day of judgment because this universe that God made, it is a just universe. There will be an accounting for sin. And so what Jesus says time and again, here he implies it, other times he says it very directly, is look, there is a heaven, there is a hell. You should be very concerned about where your soul is going. In fact, that should be your chief concern. We wake up every day and we have a lot of other things that fill our minds, a lot of other worries, a lot of other anxieties. 
But what he's saying is here is that there's only one thing that will truly last forever, and that is your soul. And there's only one place that your soul will be saved, and that is in Christ. Because when we come to faith in Christ, our soul, our very selves, are united with him. The Bible uses the language of being in Christ, which means that we have been united with him in his death. So he died on the cross to pay for our sins. That's been done in him. And we're also united with him in his life, his resurrected life. That now we no longer have to fear death because we are with him. Sin been paid for. Nothing but the glories of heaven to look forward to. The struggle though for us is that we still live in this world. And there are so many times daily when we are tempted to grab hold of the life that is temporary, that won't satisfy. And every time we do, it means that we have to let go of the life that Jesus has already given us. Again, the application here is fairly obvious. It kind of bubbles right to the surface. It's so obvious that I'm, I'm tempted not even to say it, but one thing I know about human beings is that we're very good at ignoring the obvious. So let me just say it. You need to ask ourselves, we should be asking ourselves, I think Jesus wants us to ask, are there ways in which we are trying to gain a little piece of this earth at the expense of our own soul? Are there things that we are giving ourselves to, that we're indulging in, that keep us from really laying hold of the life that Jesus has given us? Make no mistake, it's a gift from God. He purchased it for us on the cross. But we are called to walk after him, live in that life that he's given us. The crucified life is a life of suffering and loss. But it is the only life worth living because it means that we gain access to a true and genuine and eternal maximized life that we can never get simply through the things of this world. And it begins, it begins through confession of sin. It begins through recognizing that we have given ourselves to things that will not satisfy and that isn't just unwise, it's wrong. It's sin. To the extent then that we confess and that we turn and follow Jesus, then we look for opportunities to live it out. To, to, to love, to sacrifice, to, to help those who don't yet know Christ. But there's one other truth that Jesus puts here in this, uh, this short bit of instruction. Something that's uh, helpful for those of us seeking to do this. And here's point number three. Jesus says, we will be tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel. We will be tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel. Uh, if you are a kid following on with our sermon notes page, uh, that one is going to be different because I changed it this morning. So I'm sorry, you have to write it in. Apologies for that. But here really is what Jesus is saying. We're going to be tempted to feel ashamed. You see it in verse 26. He says, Forever is ashamed of me and of my words. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, that last bit, verse 27, he's speaking directly to the disciples. They're, they're standing in front of him or sitting. And he's saying to them, look, some of you are not going to die before you get a glimpse of the kingdom. And they did. They saw him transfigured. We're going to see that uh, next week. They saw him ascend into heaven. Uh, the Holy Spirit fell on them. So many amazing glimpses of the kingdom of God. But for us, for us, our focus should be on verse 26. Because verse 26, he said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. 
what Jesus is acknowledging here is, look, there's going to be a temptation for you to be ashamed of the very things that I'm telling you. And if that happens, I'm going to disown you at the time of the judgment, which makes sense. He's simply articulating something that makes complete sense. If we are not rejoicing in Jesus, if we are not truly in our heart trusting in him, if we're paying lip service to the gospel but not living it, there will be a day when Jesus comes and said, I, I didn't really know you. You weren't really one of my children. You didn't have genuine faith. So the question that I think we should be asking ourselves is why would, how would that happen? How would we be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? It's really not difficult to think of, of situations where that would happen because we live in the world. And the world thinks that the gospel is, is ridiculous and foolish. I mean, the world, as we've sort of said, is all about living for the things of the world. That's what you can see. Whereas the Christian gospel, Jesus is saying, no, you want to live for things that you can't yet see. And so the world looks at that and says, what are you, what are you doing? Why would you give your, your time and your money and your energy to serve a God who you, you can't even see here and now? You can see this life. You can see the things of this world. That's what you should be focused on. There's an author, uh, English author named William Somerset Maugham. He, um, he was very popular back in the early 19th century, and he lived a long time. He lived to age of 91. He was very wealthy, lived in this big uh, villa overlooking the Mediterranean. Uh, his nephew, Robin, was uh, also an author, and he wrote about some of the last days of William's life. And uh, there's, this one, there's this one part, uh, that this experience that he had with his uncle, where his uncle was reading the Bible, and I want, I want to show this to you. Uh, here's what it says. Uh, William, the, the old man, he says, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. That rings true for the world's wisdom, doesn't it? Doesn't, isn't that what people tend to think, especially those like, like William here, very wealthy, lived a long life? They say, look, the things of the Bible, the gospel, it's interesting. It's worth thinking about, right? Jesus himself is worth thinking about, a wise teacher, a lot of moral instruction. There's a lot to be gained there for our life. But, but come on, to sacrifice yourself, to live a crucified life, that's bunk, isn't it? How could that actually bring you greater joy and satisfaction in life? Why would you live a crucified life when you could maximize your life here and now? But see, the difference, the thing that William, Somerset mom, couldn't see in the moment was the lack of hope in an earthly life. Robin, his nephew, goes on to, to tell the story of his death. This old man, for all of his wealth, for all of the, the life he lived to the fullest, he died in terror. Robin tells a story of the nights before his death where his uncle would be yelling and screaming. He would be saying things like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. Go away. Go away. As he's speaking to, to the grim reaper who he knew was coming for him. See, that's where you can tell the value of the different lives. One seems valuable in the moment, but there's an end where it's revealed to be worth nothing. There's no hope. 
No future goodness that is coming for those who have only hoped in this world. But the life of the gospel, it never ends. The life of the gospel brings hope forevermore. This is why Paul can say in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see the, the connection there. He's saying, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's, that's the salvation. That's the hope that every human being needs. It's found in the crucifixion of Christ. It's found in his death and his resurrection. And for those who truly want to be saved, to save their own life, they need to have faith in him. That's the only safe place for their soul. In the end, really there's a choice, isn't there? That's really, in a sense, what Jesus is saying, that there's the world or there's your soul. And the question, again, that's bubbling to the surface, is, is what are we living for? What kind of a life do we want to live? When we think of the maximized, fullest sense of life, when we think of our dreams for our life, what do we think of? What are we living for? Who are we following? Jesus tells us that, that there's a wide road and it seems like an easy journey, but it doesn't go in the right direction. But there's also a narrow path. And that narrow path is filled with difficulty and turmoil and suffering, but it leads to a clearing. It leads to a clearing where we experience all the bliss and joy that God always intended for us because it passes by the cross. My hope for us as a church, my hope if you're watching, if you're here, is that for us as a church that we would embrace the crucified life. That people would see in us a willingness to suffer, not for suffering's sake, but for the sake of honoring Christ and for the sake of loving people. And my hope for those who again are, are just not sure about this whole idea of Jesus, about what he's done and whether it's really worth it. My hope also is that God would move in your heart to help you examine the life that you're living and to compare it with the value that's presented in the gospel. For there's only one way to really save our life, and that is to lose it and to latch on to the one who lives forever. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are thankful. We're thankful for your word. Thankful, Lord Jesus, that that when it comes to every issue of life, big and small, you have wisdom for us. And thankful, Jesus, that, that you've called us to a life to follow you. You've given us life eternal and then said, now come and walk in my ways because as you do it, you will grow closer to me. That's the beauty of the crucified life, Jesus. That in the end, we know where we will go, but even in the midst of it, even in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the difficulties, we know whose we are. We are yours. I pray for your help. I pray that we would not give in to the temptation of latching on to things of this world or feeling ashamed when people ridicule us for saying that we're followers of Christ. And Jesus, I also pray for those that are considering you, thinking of you, wondering if in fact you have something they might need. I pray for your help. I pray you'd open their eyes to see the truth that this life is not all there is. In fact, Jesus, you gave everything so that we might have eternal life. I pray that there would be hope for each one of us by your grace and by your power. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.